Hi, this is Matt Slepin, and welcome to Leading Voices in Real Estate. Today's interview is with Daryl Carter, the chairman and CEO of Avanath Capital Management, a vertically integrated real estate investment firm that acquires, renovates, and operates affordable and workforce housing communities across the country. Since its founding in 2008, Avanath has invested in about $1.5 billion of real estate. Daryl is one of the most prominent black leaders in the real estate industry nationally and served as a past chairman of the National Multi Housing Council. One of the themes of Leading Voices is that the real estate industry can be a business of passion and meaning. You'll definitely hear that in our conversation with Daryl. Mid-episode, we're going to hear from C.W. Early, a managing director at our sponsor, JLL, about some of the trends that he's seeing in the affordable and workforce housing investment space. As always, thanks to JLL for sponsoring the podcast. JLL is a leading professional services firm that is reimagining the world of real estate by creating rewarding opportunities and amazing spaces around the world so that people can achieve their ambitions. For more information on JLL, visit jll.com voices. A comment for our loyal listeners on the series and the themes we're exploring. This episode and the last release with Jon Stewart are both in the apartment sector and specifically in affordable and workforce housing. By now, you might know that this is an area of particular interest and expertise for me, so it will continue to be a periodic theme of the podcast, but not the new focus of the podcast. Upcoming episodes will continue to explore different sectors within the business, since breadth of perspectives is our goal. Indeed, the next episode is with the CEO of the largest data center REIT, Digital Realty Trust. We will also have periodic deep dive episodes different from the leadership discussions that have been the theme of Leading Voices. We'll release these as special editions outside of our every other week release of the core leadership discussions in the series. Thank you for being a listener to Leading Voices. We welcome your feedback and suggestions on the series and please invite your colleagues and friends to try the series as well. Visit us at leadingvoicespodcast.com or email me at my day job at Terra Search Partners at matt at terrasearchpartners.com. I hope that you enjoy the conversation with Daryl Carter. So, so Daryl, let first question, just we're going to want to talk about your life and your career and how we got to this place. But before we do, it's always helpful for our listeners up front to have some sense of what's this guy doing? So if you could kind of give us a one or two minute kind of explanation of what Avanath is in your current business, that's really helpful. Avanath uh, is an investment firm that is focused on uh, multifamily, specifically we're in affordable and workforce housing, meaning that we focus on residents that typically make thirty to $80,000 a year. And we're primarily on the two coasts. We uh, own and operate really from Seattle to San Diego, Denver, uh, Texas, uh, Michigan, and then New York City to Florida. And we have a big presence in New York City, Washington, D.C., uh, North Carolina, and uh, we have Florida is our second biggest market after California. Mm-hmm. And um, we, uh, our business model is to acquire and renovate existing assets, uh, being tax credit properties project-based Section 8, and then just naturally affordable older properties we buy. Mm-hmm. And about how many units and properties do you we have We right will now? hit about 10,000 units by the end of the year. Oh, good for you. And, uh-huh. and, uh, and about 60 communities across the country. Uh-huh. And you're a fund manager, so you're on Fund 1, 2, 3? We are in Fund—we are actually lo- just launched Fund 4. 
Congratulations. So we have done uh, three funds. The first one, which was uh, Vintage 2010, was uh, about $120 million. Our second one, which was Vintage 2013, uh, was $200 million. And our third one, which was Vintage 2015 is or 2016, is uh, $400 million. And um, our next one, we hope to be 550 to $600 million. And, and the other thing is we're vertically integrated. So we do uh-huh. um, the investment, the renovations, and we do property management. So that's a little bit of a departure from the first company I started where we didn't do property management. We think in this sector it's really crucial. Mm-hmm. The first company you started in Evanath or? No, no, in, in Capri Capital and okay. our investment strategy in apartments. We were not vertically integrated. And I believe that. In our space, it's a good strategy to, to be vertically integrated. It makes a lot of sense. Uh, and we're going to talk about both businesses as we go through your story. But let's let's start at the beginning, um, which always matters to the present. Where, where did you grow up? And I know college was architecture and basketball, if those are headlines for me. But tell me the Daryl story. I grew up story. in Detroit, uh-huh. west side of Detroit. Uh, like most people who grew up in my neighborhood, their dads and or moms worked in the auto industry. Um, and, you know, growing up in the 60s and 70s in Detroit, you know, before the mid-70s, the auto industry was pretty prosperous and, and could afford a family of, of, you know, low and moderate income means a, a good lifestyle. And so um, a, a decent lifestyle. I mean, my uh, parents owned their house. You know, I mean, it was a it's probably a 900 square foot uh, uh, house. But, uh-huh. you know, um, but again, it, it afforded a good uh, life. And, and most of Detroit was uh, w- Detroit was comprised of immigrants. And uh, they were either from um, Mexico, Philippines, Italy, Ireland, or Southern African Americans, because right. everybody, because my fam- my both my parents grew up in Mississippi, and they followed a sibling. They were my parents were b- huge families, thirteen and eighteen kids. I mean, thirteen and eight kids, and they eighteen doesn't no, work. not eight, eighteen. <laughs> Sorry, there's some math that gets no, in the way. Thir- thirteen and eight, and they followed one of their siblings. Each of them followed a sibling. So we grew up in a neighborhood where we had lots of uncles and aunts and cousins. Mm-hmm. And they all worked. You know, my my dad worked with his brothers and my mom worked with her sisters. And, you know, and, mm-hmm. and, and so that was, you know, on Sunday dinner, we were, there were always 30, 40 people, you know. It, it was a big family, you know, very ethnic uh, right. Southern family. Uh-huh. Fascinating. And those were the days when there was a black, middle-class, working-class, blue-collar, stable, solid communities in Detroit. That all well, changed. Well, you know, one of the things, the one slight benefit that existed when in the neighborhood I grew up in was, because it was, Detroit was very segregated, but in every community— there was in the African American community there were the, the 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 kind of the working class and then you know all the the teachers they lived on a maybe a little bit nicer neighborhood and then you know the doctors and the lawyers they lived on the boulevards and and so it was one of those where uh, and and I think it, it's unlike some of the rhetoric today my my dad was one of those that he just said look you don't want to envy people 
on Oakman Boulevard, which was a boulevard near our house, he said, you want to be on Oakman Boulevard. And mm-hmm. he said, it, you have to work hard. And people there, they're educated. And so education was a very, very strong value in our family. And so, you know, that's the one commentary that I think is different today. And it's one that is very important for us in the housing business. I really think mixed income communities are better because they're aspirational in the same way that my neighborhood, you know, looking at Oakman Boulevard was aspirational. Absolutely true. Uh, So, you know, I think that that's what, and unfortunately you look at a lot of cities, including Detroit, and part of what happened, and, and, you know, it was actually a great model because my dad worked at a plant that was three or four blocks from my elementary school. Mm -hmm. And so... He got off of work at 2.30. He walked to work. And, you know, but he walked right by the school. So, you know, you'd see, you come out of school, it's nothing but dads because the plan had emptied out and the dads walked the kids home. And, of course, it would be a tough evening for me if the teacher, because she knew my dad would be out there if I had an <laughs> issue. Like, let me tell you about your son. That was a, that was a bad six-block walk. Six walk. But, you know, when you look at that model, yep. you know, there are no gang problems then. When dads are walking kids home, there's not a gang problem. There's not, you know, there's, it's, it's a very stable situation. And then someone got the bright idea that, um, you know, one of many that have been made in the auto industry, well, you know, we really shouldn't have plants in the middle of a neighborhood. So we're going to move it out 20 miles, which then created, it changed because all of a sudden, we had one car. We then had to have two. Right. You know, dads weren't picking up kids. You know, I mean, it, it just changed it. And so that was that was the first change. But yes. That, but they had. But the jobs hadn't been lost no. yet. And when you grew up, it was still that situation. Well, but it was starting to change because then you know you got into the seventies and the, the Japanese auto influx right. and the gas issues, and so it started declining then. Mm-hmm. And you know, to then it really to when I got out of. Uh, graduate school in 1981, there was just no chance of getting a job in Detroit. Mm-hmm. It was just, you know, I mean, and my parents, they actually said, you know, you got to do what we did because they grew up in Mississippi. There was just no opportunity for them to move, to stay in Mississippi. You had racism. You just did not have the economic opportunities there. So they moved. And, and that right. was a very, in many respects, a much more courageous decision that they made without having any skills. They just had you know, the wanting, the desire to do better. Mm-hmm. Um, and they left with that desire. And at least I had an education that I could go wherever I wanted to de- go. And uh, But, you know, that's the thing that's happened in a lot of communities. It's not, you know, I think one of the most fascinating things is that during the 60s, University of Michigan, had there was all these protests to get more African-American enrollment at the University of Michigan. Believe it or not, my class, which was a class of 1977, was the highest percentage. There, there was a goal. There was a, uh, it was called the Black Action Movement, which my sister, who was three years ahead of me there, mm-hmm. was part of in the late 60s that, you know, the, 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 the goal was 10% African-American enrollment at the University of Michigan. My class got to about 9%. And the 80% of those kids were from the state of Michigan. Wow. And so then, but what happened is that class, which 
you know, over the last 12 to 15 years would be the prime wealth producing, you know, at their wealth producing peak, you know, about 80% of them left the state of Michigan. And so that's the that's why you have a downturn in a place like Mississippi is because the a- ambitious people leave. Same thing that part of the 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 issues in Michigan and specifically Detroit, right, is that you have the 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 people who have the most education, they leave. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, I think one of the things that's changed in that city is you know with Quicken and other thing other companies in the technology area moving their driverless cars, you're all of a sudden bringing, you know, educated people back into the state, which mm-hmm. I think is positive. That makes a huge difference. And also people now want to live in cities, and this is a city that has bones to be recreated, yep. and it's happening yep. in a big way. So for you, you went to the University of Michigan and studied architecture? I studied architecture. What was the draw to architecture? I like to draw. Uh-huh. I like math. I didn't like. I didn't like art or well enough to be an artist, and uh-huh. I, nor was I good enough. I like numbers and math. I didn't like necessarily wanted to focus on it as an engineering. And candidly, it was a default of something that captured enough of my interest. I can't say that I ever had a passion for it, mm-hmm. but I always like buildings. I always like walking by construction sites and things like that. Mm-hmm. And and it was interesting. And I but again, I didn't think that I had the I always knew I didn't have the passion for it to sit and design all day. Cuz I'm I I think I'm much more of a people person and I would get bored doing that. Mm-hmm. But I I thought it was intellectually a great thing and I still kind of play around with it on some of our renovations and think of, you know, different uh concepts that I remembered in architecture and and uh uh I think I have a good eye for, you know, um design and things like that. Uh-huh. But I don't think I would I, – I didn't think I was particularly gifted in that area, but it was a good thing to study. It's a good thing to study. It gets yeah. you into real estate yes. and starts you in the business. Yeah. Now, just to get this part in the conversation a little bit, you played ball at I Michigan? played basketball at University of Michigan. Any basketball. headlines from this? No, I was I was a I was a mediocre player in college. I was a great player in high school, and you know it's like a numbers game with anything. You yeah, know, you could be the best in your neighborhood. Then you get to high school, you're maybe not. You're still pretty good, and then you get to University of Michigan. There are a lot of very good players, and you realize that uh, how good people are, and and you. I was realistic enough early on to know that I wouldn't make it in the NBA. But, you know, I, I played against and with a lot of people that made it in the NBA, and, and it's one of my passions I still love, and I'm delighted that uh, of my two kids, I have one that plays, the other uh, plays my other sport later of passion, uh, which is golf. So, you know, I get to play golf with my son, and I get to play horse with my daughter. Sounds fun. Horse will do the trick. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and and you were on the other side of the microphone at an NMHC conference where you were interviewing Magic Johnson. Yes. So we were rev- you were reverse roles to yes. this one. But was he a peer at that? Yeah, same- I knew. I actually knew him from AAU ball. Wow. And uh, so he, you know, he, there was a guy. There was a. Um, it's a place in Detroit called St. Cecilia, and it was run by a guy named Sam Washington, who's now passed away. Anybody who touches basketball in the state of Michigan knew of St. Cecilia, particularly the era, and he would have these teams and these summer leagues and things like that, and he would never know your he would never remember your name. He would just call you number so and so. That's what he'd do. And 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 he just, you know, 
And then there was this kid who came, was coming down from East Lansing. Uh-huh. And um, I'll never forget, he said, you know, there's a kid who's kind of, he's they think he's pretty good. And, you know, but he hasn't played in Detroit. So make sure he understands what Detroit is like. So I think the first day he played and he every time he went to the basket, he got knocked down. And and we often, you know, I run into him from time to time and he laughs about that. But, you know, Detroit had some phenomenal basketball players and and. Um, many and certainly Irvin is one of them, and, and who you know I I still run into from time to time, and very proud of what he's accomplished outside of basketball. Absolutely, we're going to try to get him on the podcast because yeah. he's in the real estate business yes. in some ways. Yes. So we're yes. we're going to go there. So after Michigan was right to MIT, or yeah, you... I went to graduate school at MIT. Uh-huh. I was there for uh, three and a half years. I got a master's in architecture and an MBA. So you continued architecture, yep. but then you realized maybe that this was the pathway yes. was the MBA. Yeah, side. and I had a professor who um, I worked part time with, who was an architect, very prominent architect, and he was doing business with a developer who was renovating or who was building townhouses in Roxbury. And so I was once in a meeting, and and uh, this gentleman who. You know, we start talking, and and then he he convinced me to come work for him part time, uh-huh. which I did. His name was Richard Taylor, and Richard, would I just remember said, you know, if you want to be in this business, you need to learn finance, and 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 Richard was a Harvard Business School and and uh, Harvard Law School grad, and uh, he you know and just said you need to know accounting, you need to know finance, and and so. I, he encouraged me. I went to and then applied and got into the MBA school, and I completed both of them. Oh, good for you. It's uh, I, this, You're the second or third MIT grad on the podcast, and I've been telling everyone my daughter is in applying right now for urban planning school and real estate degrees, including at MIT. And we're pushing – do the MBA if you can too, because the finance that side would, matters to make the design absolutely. side work. Absolutely. Well, they have a great program at MIT, and and when I was there, actually one of the people on my thesis committee was Larry Bacow, who's now the uh, president of Harvard, uh-huh. and uh, he's done. I mean, there, it was funny because that out of the the planning school that you know one of the provosts, Phil Clay at MIT, who became the provost. Uh-huh. So MIT, the planning school, has sort of um, been a place where a lot of very successful people have gone through. Absolutely true. Okay, so you go right to Continental Bank from there. Yes. And let's put Continental Bank in context for two things that I know. One is it it was about to crash. Yes. So the the bankruptcy is famous. But what most of our listeners don't know is that you went into one of the crucibles of real estate alumni clubs, if those are the right words, with Jim Harper. Yes. So talk about kind of your new education there and and then tell us either Jim Harper's story or your peer group who are all in the business and today and really leaders in the business. Well, there there have been two places in my life, and that's one of them, where I arrived there and I immediately said, well, it's been more than two places having this feeling like, my uh-huh. God, I don't belong. These people are just incredibly smart. Uh-huh. And, you know, I felt that at MIT. I felt that at Michigan. And so you, you learn that you – but that I really felt it there. Yeah. And Jim Harper was uh, someone who, you know, was a, kind of a legend in the business who had made all this money and creating these REITs in the 60s. And he later sold 
his company to Continental Bank and was the largest shareholder of the bank. And he, you know, recruited, he wanted, you know, very well-educated, hardworking people to build a commercial real estate business, which he did. And so there was a, you know, 10 or 12 people a year that would come in the training class. And, uh-huh. and uh, some of the people who were there with me, uh, Albert Perez, who is the CEO of McKinley, uh, David Nethercutt, who just retired as CEO of um, Equity Residential. David was actually a trainee under me. Uh-huh. Uh, and then Marianne King, who I actually trained under. Uh, Marianne, who is the CEO of Moran & Company. Uh, Don Smith, who is the CEO of Jupiter Realty. And I worked for Don for a while. But it was just these incredible people who... Uh, you know Peter Donovan, who was uh, Peter and I sat next to each other for four years, and and you know who runs CBRE's financial services group. So it was a tremendous group of very talented people, but more importantly, just some great friends who have been life lifelong friends who have made a huge impact. That group has made a huge impact not only on my personal life as friends, but also in my business career. Mm-hmm. It, it's interesting. Uh, w- one of the one of the listening groups of our podcast are young people getting into the industry. And one thing I always tell them about is if you're lucky enough to fall into one of those groups and then you make friends and you're all good and you have a mentor to run the business and then you stay in touch throughout your career, there, there's some dynamic of uh, that pushes into success and those relationships matter, huge. You know, it really does. And, you know, I remember um, when we got into my old company, Capri, when we had started, we got into the, the Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac multifamily lending business. Right. And, of course, you know, we were building a business, and Peter Donovan at that time was the CEO of Berkshire. And they were the big dogs in the business. But I would call Peter whenever I, you know, when I have a problem or an issue. And Peter was one of those that I would say, Peter, I have this problem. And I start laying out the problem. And he said, oh. and then Peter said, well, let me tell you my problems. And then when Peter was done, I'm like, hey, I don't have any problems anymore. <laughs> <laughs> and Peter was always that kind of person, and is still one of my best friends, right. that no matter what your problems were, Peter was, you know, the, the, the Don, not the Don Rickles, that's not fair, but Peter was one of those who said, well, let me tell you, I will give you my problems. And then you say, oh, okay, you know, good luck with that. Right. But, you know, Peter was one of these that, um, you know, and we, we competed vigorously against each other, but we were very good friends and we always compared notes. We always, you know, uh, and very often people who work for both of us were very uncomfortable with our relationship. But, you know, it, it helped make both of us, I think, more successful. I think it's one's dynamics of the real estate business, which yes. is competitors grew up together somehow, and they're friendly competitors yep. by and large in the business and do share ideas. And yes. we have organizations that help us to do that, Absolutely. but it's a part of the business. Well, and that's one of the great things about National Multifamily Housing Council is uh-huh. – the sharing of things. And, and, you know, I think that people, you know, it's, it's always, you don't ever, you're always wondering if you're getting it right. And sometimes, you know, to call someone who's a peer who may have struggled with the same thing is it's why the networking for people who are starting out that, you know, develop a peer group because as they grow in the business, you will, you will also grow. And, you know, you, you need those touch points sometimes. Absolutely true. Okay, so then did were you there when Continental failed? 
I was the, well, it wasn't when I, your full, no, fault. No, when I joined, and, and you know, it's funny when I took the job there in 1981. Continental had just been uh, voted one of the best five managed companies in the U.S. in 1981 by Barron's Magazine, and then it was two years later that. Penn Square happened, which was a uh, you know these oil and gas um, lending debacle, right? And you know the it actually never filed bankruptcy. They actually were restructured and they got a bailout. It was seven billion dollars by the uh, FDIC, and you know it was it was an interesting time. And I will and certainly it was a time where there were high interest rates. And there were all these other things, and it was a huge problem. Real estate portfolio. We uh-huh. had gotten all these, done all these condo loans. We probably had at least a billion dollars of on uh, condo loans on Brickell Avenue and North Miami Beach. And I remember working on that. Mm-hmm. And I remember, um, you know, a year or two after I'd got, you know, a year after the training program, someone said, "Look, here are." 700, we have two condo buildings, Winston Towers, 700 unsold condominium units in North Miami Beach. Figure out what to do with them. And and the first thing I had to do, and I'll never forget, Albert Perez and I, we go down there, and Albert and I are literally, and Albert's a Northwestern MBA, uh, and we are literally counting what, each unsold apartment had in it what the finishes were, which is a very tedious job for 700 unsold condominiums. That's a lot. And I said, okay, I got, we got MBAs at leading <laughs> business schools <laughs> for this. Um, but it, would, it always makes me think whenever one of my young, talented people say, we should get in the condo investment, like, if you ever walked on 700 unsold condominium <laughs> units, that will cure you. But, you know, the one thing is we did all kinds of deals. We At the time, they changed the tax laws, so we ended up selling some of them to some of the the the, um, the tax uh, syndicators and, you know, the JMBs and right. all these other people. Um, and, and, you know, the one thing about that that is a perhaps a little bit of a generational issue today when – you know, we. I mean, I have a couple of my very talented people come, and we have a property that uh, is perhaps underperforming our portfolio, and it's at 91, 92% occupancy. And I said, they said, well, we think that we should sell it because just a few things aren't working. And and I said, well, have we tried this? And have? And they said, well, it's, it's really hard. <laughs> and I hold my breath, and I said, okay. Uh, and and rather than erupt, which I would have done a few years earlier, I said, you know, I, I thought about it. I said, let me get back to you. So I sit down and said, you know, you make your success in this industry by taking on very difficult challenges and making them work. And I said, you know what? I have neglected you as a leader for providing those th- those opportunities for you. This is a perfect opportunity for you to you know, to cure a situation that maybe right. is less than optimal. Because I can tell you that during doing two years of workouts is the best experience. I've heard that from so many people. And maybe it's a generational thing or it's because there's a workout cycle about every eight years. So everyone's yes. been through it. But it's, the again, I'll use the word crucible. So one of those crucible things that people get through 
learn a lot, grow a lot, and they always do it well before they're ready to do it. So right. it's a growth experience. And, and you know, when you think about we had all kinds of unsold houses in California right. when interest rates were 20%. Mm-hmm. And, you know, now I, I, I sometimes, you know, when you think about it, and, and my next generation of leadership in the company has 15 to 20 years experience. Sometimes when I say that interest rates were 20%, they look at me like I have two heads because they have lived in a world of the last 20 years. Two, three, four. Yeah, yeah where interest rates and, and the concept of even it being double digit is just foreign to them. And I say, well, you know, I bought my first house and it was I was so excited when I got a 13.5% mortgage. And they, you know, it is interesting to, to know that, you know, as I look at our business, the <laughs> other thing is the last seven or eight years has been the golden ages for apartments. Right. And I always continue to make the point, let's not confuse success and wind at our back with that we are, you know, that we are, perform- I mean, we are performing well, but let's let's keep in the context that it's easy to perform well with the wind at your back. Absolutely true. And so, you know, and and so our generation of leaders, you know, a lot of them haven't seen double digit interest rates, you know, or they haven't seen when it swings back the other way, and you know, and maybe they started, in you know, and they saw what happened at two thousand six to two thousand nine, so they saw that, but but. More often, you know, they haven't, you know, when you've gone through a few cycles, you can see it. You know, I'm not sure we're about to hit one. I, I think that certainly rates are going to go up. That's going to have some impact on values. Right. Um, but, you know, it's one of those things that I I really try, you know, and, and, and I recognize I can't. I can't have they 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 it may be intellectually they they can get the fact that interest rates have been at that level, but emotionally and what it exactly means they have no idea, and I can't replicate that. No, not but at all. Um, anyway, but that was the basis of when you when when I started out and why I think that group, David Nethercut and and Marianne King and all we were all young and we're just given things like that to do and we had to figure it out on our own and I think that's why it made that group very successful. Mm-hmm. Interesting. So after Continental and we'll move quickly because we want to get to Capri right. but after Continental you went was it we, Westinghouse? Westinghouse Credit. I worked there five years moved up. I ended up running the western half of the real estate Is uh, that what company. brought you to the west coast? Yes. That, that's what you know and, and the thing Promise is I, I was living in Chicago and I was traveling uh-huh. between Miami. I was traveling. I handled primarily residential home builders and condo developers. So I was either in Miami or Southern California. And eventually when you're in Chicago and you're a Midwestern boy and you, you see Southern California, I'm like, I'm done. And uh, it was always one of my regrets. I was recruited when I was out of high school by Pepperdine. Uh-huh. And I remember when I first saw it, I'm like, what an idiot. <laughs> <laughs> I the same. I went to Oberlin College, and then I visited a friend who went to Santa Cruz. And I'm like, well, I'm crazy. Well, yeah, Both at the top of a mountain. Yeah. yeah. Makes no sense. <laughs> Makes no sense. So you're at Westinghouse, and then you left there. and st- we, I, Then a longtime friend of mine who, uh, Quentin Primo, uh, mm-hmm. Quentin and I went to, to high school together in Detroit. And so we've known each other, and Quentin and I were great friends. He arrived in Chicago the same time I arrived. He had gone, I mean, we, on paper, I went to Michigan, he went to Indiana, then um, 
he went to Harvard, I went to MIT, and then we both wound up in Chicago. He was working at Citibank in real estate, and I was working across the street at Continental Bank. So we were two, you know, young guys, you know, in our mid twenties, and and we would close Rush Street down. <laughs> <laughs> but we, you know, it was uh, my best friend, and then we decided. Um, when we left, when I left Westinghouse, we had always talked about doing something together, and so we started. Uh, originally, it was uh, Carter Primo Chesterton, and we the third partner was a very large institutional investor called Chesterton out of the UK, and then eventually, a few years later, we brought we bought them out, and we changed the name to Capri Capital, uh-huh. Carter and Primo. And so about what year was that? We started Capri in 1991. Okay, so two. High school friends, Harvard and MIT, with good experience in big institutions, now go start their own thing. First of all, terrifying thought, and congratulations for doing that. What was the business model? What was the plan? What did it become? And what did your partnership look like? What did he do? What did you do? Well, you know, the, the, the great thing about when you start a business, you don't know how it's going to evolve. And we, ha- if you looked at our original business plan, I think we, we had a whole bunch of different ideas. But what was very obvious was that there was a lack of pension fund capital that invested in communities that were underserved. And that we really built around that theme, both our equity business and then we got involved in our lending and debt business. Um, and, you know, 1992, or uh, I believe was the year of the L.A. riots, and there was all this talk about, you know, well, what's happening in inner cities and, and lack of investment. And so uh, ultimately, we, um, you know, we, we convinced a number of pension funds that they should invest in markets that were underserved by institutional capital. We were, for instance, CalPERS launched this initiative to, to do urban investing, where they did, in fact, uh, they did one partnership with Victor McFarland and 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 Irvin Johnson, and uh, for retail, and then they ended up doing. We were their first partner to do the um, the apartment side of that, mm-hmm. and and so, but you know that business we eventually built about a two or three billion dollar equity portfolio, primarily apartments, uh, primarily public fund investors. And then we had built a sizable uh, multifamily mortgage banking uh, business. We were a Fannie, Freddie, and FHA uh, lender uh-huh. on apartments. Uh, and and in that business, we became we were the largest. Uh, you know, part of now doing affordable investing, uh, we didn't do a lot of the what I call subsidized. Uh, or tax credit and that kind of investing. But we did a lot in the lending side. We were the largest seller servicer for Fannie in tax exempt and Freddie for tax exempt bonds and other affordable deals. Mm-hmm. So we learned a lot about that doing on the debt side. Mm-hmm. And so uh, ultimately, the lending business, as you know, we look around and it when we started in that business, you mentioned Shaker. And you mentioned right. you know people like Peter Donovan and Mallory Walker and and it was basically a room of guys that owned businesses and the thought that any of us would ever have a billion dollar portfolio, let alone having a billion dollars of originations, was laughable. I mean that you know when we used to have the dust meetings, it would it, it, again there were a bunch of entrepreneurs that ran little mortgage banking businesses that you know were were kind of tailored and I think. Uh, you know, ultimately, 
when uh, Shekar sold first. He was one of the early ones. So Shekar Narasimhan owned Washington yes. and started Washington yes. Mortgage. He sold a Prudential, then a few, and then I think um, uh, someone else, Terry Havens, they sold. I forget their company. It was to, Riley Mortgage. Riley I Mortgage, there too. right? They <laughs> sold to Wells Fargo. Yes. And all of a sudden, you look around, and, and you're in an industry where you're competing with very, very large banks. And so we then said, you know, the water is getting very deep here, and we're, you know, and as did a lot of people. So that business in, in between 1999 and 2004, there was a huge shift. You know, Key Bank, got in, Key Bank had gotten in the business, uh, and we ultimately sold our business to um, – uh, centerline capital which at the time was controlled by the related companies uh-huh. uh, which I just as an you know when you, when I mentioned places with incredible people that was another place another related. place you show up and- yeah yeah just <laughs> exceptional people at that place uh-huh. and- Let, let's go back a little bit because I'm curious about a couple things that you talked about so one is and you and I got to know each other when you were at Capri, but you right. you were really you kind of ran the mortgage business more, and Quentin Moore did the Quentin did more equity of the, side. He did more of the capital raising. I did more of the investment on both the debt and the equity business. Okay, uh, Quentin and Quentin and I we were still great friends, and we were great partners. Quentin, you know, you know, partnerships. We were very complimentary. Uh-huh. You know, I would be in a meeting with, uh, we're looking at new asset management systems, and I'm sitting in there, and Quentin would come by, and he said, why are you doing this? Shouldn't this run by itself? I said, no, I'm in here because you're not. And, you know, but Quentin was very, very good at marketing the firm, creating new opportunities for us, um, raising capital, giving us, you know, he was a great, uh, he he was great externally. I was more the internal person, which has been interesting because now, when we decided very amicably in 2006 we were going to go our separate ways, and and and, you know, I've had to become much more external more than I'd like to be in this right. company, and I think he's had to be more, you know, the nuts and bolts in in his company. Uh, but we we continue to be good friends, and we help each other, as you know all that we can. Uh-huh. And the other thing you mentioned is th- this group of companies that were lenders that a billion dollars was un- unimaginable um, had been set up by Fannie Mae in the DUST program. So they're kind of GSE lenders way back when. And you said you started to compete with big banks. Maybe not so hard to compete with big banks, except there was a balance sheet requirement. As you got bigger, there was like an uh-oh of the amount of that your fannies are hanging out there, well, not fanny that's a, yeah. <laughs> that goes both ways here. But so, what was that? Well, I think the biggest issue is that you know you look at someone like P and C, which owned Midland. Right. You know, we they were spending ten and twenty million dollars a year on technology, so right. it wasn't so much the balance sheet, but it was some of the things they were doing in the back room on the servicing and right. things like that that our, we could not compete with those costs. Mm-hmm. You know, I remember when, you know, servicing spreads got under 10 basis points and, and we were like, oh, my God, how do you know? But for people who invest in that level of technology, they could still make money. So I think it was less, believe it or not, on the execution and the front end of the business and the capital. It was more 
the also the ability to aggregate and you know I mean some of these banks can can take down a portfolio then they can flip it to Fannie and Freddie we didn't have that capability mm-hmm. either so I think it was the warehousing uh, you know I, I not you know I always like to compete against the big banks because we say look you you know once I make a decision you're done right you know uh, so. But I think it's like anything, there is, we have created, I think in the financial services broadly, we have a barbell. And on one end of the barbell, whether whether it's the institutional equity business or the debt business, you have very large, um, you know, multi-international entities on one side of the barbell that are going to be the dominant market players. And, right. and then on the other end of the barbell, you're going to have... Um, what I call category killers that have incredible execution capabilities in highly specialized niches, mm-hmm. and and I think that's the way the world. I mean, you you know, it's the retail world now. You have Best Buys on one side, and you have Walmart on the other. Right. And I think it's the same thing in in the capital markets and in the you know uh, broadly. Mm-hmm. Well, and you have the Blackstones, and yes. then you have the Avanath, so yes, we'll, which exactly. we'll talk about. Okay, and then, so you sell the company to Related Centerline, right. and you go with this new group of wacky, crazy people in New York. Talk about that, and then we'll talk about the you know, start it was of a, your It was company. a great three-year, as part of the deal, Quentin would run the our equity business that we were initially to sell 49% to uh, Related, and I would run the they had all they had already gotten into the the dust business and so right. i would r- run that combined business and um and i commuted to new york i go every other week and uh it, just an extraordinary experience working with um and getting to know a lot of very talented people and including stephen ross who mm-hmm. is the the chairman and and developed a great relationship with stephen you know of course we're fellow university of michigan um, grads so that was part of our you know connection uh, but also i learned a lot from stephen mm-hmm. I, I i'm not sure that some of the things that i'm doing now that i could do if i hadn't you know learned it from stephen and you know people forget that Related is the really one of the largest players in affordable housing, and while Stephen, you know, who now owns the Miami Dolphins and a bunch of other, you know, all these big, huge Hudson Yard developments, he has a passion for affordable housing. He got started in affordable he, housing. Yeah, he, he got started, and he cares about it. And some of you know, just being around him mm-hmm. helps shape some of the vision of you know. Uh, creating a Vanith. And, and so um, I, I, you know, I still stay in touch with Steven. He's a great friend and mentor. Uh, he's, a, he's a little bit like my dad. It was probably the closest person <laughs> because my dad did not suffer fools well and neither does Steven. And, uh, but, you know, he, he's someone who, um, despite his, his uh, you know, all his success, he is someone that if I call tomorrow he'll call me right back i mean he is always he is a great friend and mentor mm-hmm. and uh, it was there being getting your training in chicago and then living your life on the west coast is there a different clock speed in new york as well that they're part of you know i find that when you go from west to east there's a much more global awareness I don't think there's any talent difference. Uh-huh. I just think that there is a you know a look, and maybe that's that is 
declining less given what's happened in the tech world because right. I think this is certainly the center of the tech world. But you know, I think that that you you're more you know the 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 time zone thing. You know, being on the East Coast, you're just you're a little bit more plugged in. Okay, fair deal. <laughs> okay, so then you go and started your company, the Havana. company that you have now. So tell us about that, and where did the name come from, and then what did it look like before the financial crisis, and then what's well, the Well, I started about? it right at the, in the midst of the financial crisis. Uh, Vanith, I start, you know, and I like, because I lack creativity to coming up with better names, but just as Capri was a Carter and Primo, Avanith, uh, my daughter is named Ava, and my son is named Nathan. So that's why Avana. And the two of them have great debates. They're 17 months apart, so there's great sibling rivalry. She always likes to point out that her full name is in the company, Mm -hmm. Ava. She said, well, my name is there. And he likes to point out, well, I have more letters than you. So (laughs) it's, it's a great debate. But, you know, for lacking creativity. And it's also one of the things as... Uh, Capri, it's early in the alphabet because I think it's always it's it's good and and we've tried to brand you know we've we've um, done a lot of branding our logo was the, our T was a plus sign and and on the back of our card we'd say adding value adding values to investment. Adding values to investment. Yes. Mm-hmm. And which is kind of both, right. yeah. you know, what do you call it? A double entendre? Yeah. And, and so where we were not only going to create value for our investors, but we were going to do things in a different way. I mean, my feeling with in looking at affordable housing is that there were just, you know, from financing it, you know, both subsidize and the lower end of the housing business that – there were just some different models that we that, that we did a lot of things I think that were wrong, or not wrong, but we could just do things better. We as an industry, as an industry, have created yes. a stock and a portfolio as global right. portfolio. Right. We could do things on the lower end of rentals, and my my model for starting this business was really Marriott, which I think is a superior company. Mm-hmm. Marriott owns Ritz Carlton. Mm-hmm. They also own Fairfield Inns and Marriott Courtyards. There is certainly a difference in the product and in certain things, but the way you're you're greeted when you check into a you know Marriott Courtyard. You know, I go to a lot of state capitals and fundraising, and you end up with Marriott Courtyards and Fairfield Inns. Right. The way they greet you, oh, Mr. Carter, welcome back. And you know, there is a it, they don't treat you any differently there than at the Ritz Carlton. And there's a level of professionalism and institutionalization yes. that they may have gone to school a little bit in the Ritz, but they bring it. Everywhere. Right. They bring it everywhere. That's exactly it. And so what we wanted to do, the most important thing that I wanted to do in creating this company is take the best practices that we do in the A market and bring it to the lower end of the rental market, exactly the way Marriott Marriott has done it in their lower uh, brands, that people are still treated with respect. If they're paying, you know, $129 a night or $529 a night, they're treated the same way. And that's an issue that you look at in the, you know, the, the affordable housing industry. And, and, you know, much is talked about the book Evicted that Matthew Desmond wrote. Yep. And, and the, the worst parts of that bo- book, which are not necessarily the physical conditions, it's just the way people were treated with a lack of respect and dignity. So we do part of our business, we do from top to bottom a lot of training as to 
how residents are treated and how we don't refer to them as tenants, they're residents. We don't refer to their, well, what's in your unit or what's what's wrong with your home. Mm -hmm. But we try to connotate that, you know, it's their home and we're just their, we're caretakers for them in their home. And, And I just think that mentality in the way that you treat people, you know, if there's a problem with someone's rent, we like to bring them to the office away from their kids, not to talk about it in front of their kids. You know, things like that that just brings a level of dignity to that sector, which very often lacks it. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And, and unfortunately, there are too many uh, Donald Sterlings that operate in that world. It's a fair deal. It's true. And one of the we began the conversation about how important it is to be vertically integrated. So for you to have that component, you wouldn't have that kind of control right. to bring that. And but in but in your business, your average hold period of a property is is midterm. You're not holding these forever. Well, we're you know our funds have a ten to twelve year life, uh-huh. and so you know it's a reasonably long term. I mean, interesting. Now we are in the process of potentially recapitalizing our fund one where we would hold it for another 10 or 15 years. Uh So, you know, we're seeing if that model works because one of the interesting things is, you know, and our investors cover a spectrum of some that care about the returns. Uh Other investors, they care about some of the things we do on site, like our after school programs and things like that. And so one of the things when they look at some of the befores of our properties and then the afters, they worry, well, when you sell it, what's going to happen? Right. And it's increasingly an, an issue that our investors raise because we've created an environment that's safe, which is the most important thing, where people are treated with dignity, where we have activities for the kids and things like that. Uh, and so hopefully there's a model. I mean, we've looked, for instance, at doing an open-ended fund uh, mm-hmm. where we didn't have a – uh, a finite life. I mean, and we continue to evaluate that because it is a concern that a lot of investors have expressed. They like what we're doing, and but at some point, you've got to realize a return for them. And because I think when you look at our space, to me, it was very important to mm-hmm. show investors that we can make money. You know, we we didn't want to be one of these. Well, to do these things, you have to get a lower return. We didn't want to do that because that's not sustainable. To really get capital to flow into an area, you've got to show that it you can generate attractive risk-based returns and it's scalable. Mm-hmm. And to me, you know, making money first for people always makes it a little bit more scalable than if you weren't. Right. The question is, and, and we struggle with this in the industry, as you know, which is the popular model of multifamily investment in existing assets is value-add, and value-add works because it's a relatively short hold period, so you get both the returns during the period, but then you get a big pop. And that's worked really well in the cap rate environment we've had and, and the rest of it. And so the challenge has been, can you hold it longer term, still make money, but the definition of make money for longer term may not be at the same return, but on a risk-adjusted basis, maybe somewhat less. That's still making money for people. 
But you want you've been competing with the value add guys at that level of return in these initial funds, as you've described. Well, but I think there's a you know I mean we you know one of the things that a lot of the value add people do, and uh-huh. candidly as an industry, we do not do ourselves a favor politically when we say, well, we're going to buy a property and we're going to t- we're going to turn over. The existing resident base, 50, 60, 70 percent, and we're going to increase the rents by 50 percent. Right. It's not a good story. And I also would question, and we've looked at that strategy, I question whether or not you can really have sustainable success doing that in, in, in two ways. One is that we have found that we, even when we buy something that is not rent subsidized, we could put fifty thousand dollars in and increase the rents forty, fifty percent potentially. Mm-hmm. But we found that it's less risky to spend ten to fifteen thousand a unit, increase the rents by ten percent, then add things like washers and dryers and things that enhances the residents. That you know, in most of those deals that we've done, we've retained about eighty percent of the residents. Good for you. And the fact is. The occupancy and the lack of turnover offsets. Comes back and pays dividends. I mean, you know, the other thing is that, you know, I mean, there are two aspects of it. One is, you know, everybody who's, you know, a developer who does value add, I mean, they live in Scarsdale, Newport Beach, or Beverly Hills, or somewhere like that. (laughs) And I sometimes ask, how would you like it if you lived in a neighborhood that? 60% 60% of the, there was 60% turnover every year. How about being a kid in that neighborhood? Yeah. You would change schools. Right. That you, I mean, that, well, the, yeah. I mean, and so one of the things, if you ask us what lessons have we learned, um, our turnover is under, we're right about 13, 14% annual turnover. Consistency with residents makes a community safer. When right. people know their neighbors and all those things, there is a consistency of knowing who's there and whose children are who. It makes it safer. It makes it a more desirable community. And it, mm-hmm. you know, and when you can create that, and people who want to stay there and who want to live in a community, it gets it 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 changes the dynamic. So mm-hmm. I would question whether those value-added strategies, yeah, you might hit a window where you can execute it, but I'm not sure that it's a sustainable business model. It, one of the challenges for the industry, it's not a sustainable business model. Ultimately, if over a 10-year period of time, 10% of the assets trade that way, it's not so bad. It doesn't kill a neighborhood. But if everything goes that way over time, then you are drastically changing the nature of a neighborhood and what bites you back in the butt becomes Proposition 10 in California. Exactly. Because societally it doesn't work. It works as a business model, well, but not and societally. It, and it also, I think it adds a certain level of risk in the sense that um, what we, you know, when you're looking at um, the, the improvements, you know, the, one of the things that, you know, one of the affordability challenges is as an industry, we're over improving older C properties. Right. You know, like I will get questions. One of my questions when people, investors, and one, a couple of investors in particular, they l- walk and look and see that we don't take the popcorn ceiling out. 
Every renovation we do, we do it in the context of what, how much rent does this add? You know, and I remember NMHC, and there was a great panel about how much people will pay for different amenities. And I asked the question that probably every person that's a renter would ask is, if I, what would I, I would, can I pay less to have none of it? <laughs> exactly. And so we have such an affordability crisis that people, we have been in what I call this amenities arm race, arms race, and in reality, what we need to do is figure out ways how to renovate older properties in a more affordable manner. You know, like, for instance, we don't replace, we, we try not to replace the cabinets. We resurface them. We add new hardware. You know, we don't remove the pop- popcorn ceilings. And, and you know, the, I tell the investors, look, everybody can afford a $300 TV, big screen TV. They're looking at their TV. They're not looking at their ceiling. And so, you know, the, the, the marble countertops, you can do some composite ones that are nicely. Right. So part of the, the issue is, and if we just were more thoughtful on how we renovated things, then we could keep rents more affordable. But everybody, you know, the, the industry and a little bit of what I call opportunistic capital and chasing returns, everyone's trying to, to, to move right. the rents 40, 50%. But also, in, and, and we'll move on from the conversation, but ultimately in these communities, particularly if it's San Francisco, for example, is you have renters ready to move in there for that higher level and that higher rent because we're, a gen, we're, not, we're both gentrifying, but we're a densifying community and people are coming back to the city. And the areas they're able to move are areas that have been moderate income, but they're in, and they'll pay the bigger rent. So it's justified from that societal change, but that has a societal cost on the other side. Yeah, and there needs to be balance. There has to be balance. And, and it's a tough, you know, the free market has to find a way to have balance, and sometimes it's laws and sometimes it's self-regulation, sometimes it's investors. It's fascinating to see how that how that will change. Well, I think one of the things that the market forces now, because we have built so much new product, many of those value-added deals are up against right. those A products that are being starting to have concessions right. and things like that. So mm-hmm. you, we've seen a real slowdown in the value-added space. Mm-hmm. And, and last question, and then we'll move on, is how have your investors reacted to this and have you been able to break and it sounds like you have, break the field into new kind of investors. Often, in the, 10 years ago, most investors in this product type were CRA lenders and foundations putting in money versus, hey, we're here for the dough. We're just, it is a pure investment vehicle, better way to put it. Well, let, let's just talk about the issue of affordability because it, it ties directly into that. Uh-huh. And, and when I was chairman of NMHC, we do a lot of you know, meeting with senators and congressmen. And I don't care how left or how right they were. The meeting would always start off as what's going on with rents. Rents are so high. Because most members of Congress and the Senate, yeah, you have some very wealthy ones, you know, Purdue and a few others. But many of them were school, they were, uh, you know, elected to school board. They were, you know, they, they, and and they're, they're definitely middle class, upper middle class. But they have affordability challenges. They have parents that need seniors' housing that's affordable. They have children that are trying to leave the house and can't afford rent. So, you know, it's a dynamic that at that level, there is a lot of 
understanding and knowledge about affordability right. challenges because it's very personal. And I think it translates to the investor market in that, you know, New York City, who's one of our investors, you know, they have a lot of employees that can't afford to live in the city. Right. Same way, you know, New York Common Fund. So the it's a very personal thing where people now are seeking more, you know, situations for affordability. You know, the uh, Episcopal Church is one of our investors. You know, they 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 have clergy that have challenges and and things. So, the the investor market has it's it, affordability has touched a lot of people in this country. Yeah, and you know, equally, I mean, the the largest segment of the you know, there's so much focus on the millennials, but the far, the 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 most recent Harvard report on uh, housing. The fastest growing segment of the rental market are people over fifty. Mm-hmm. So you know we have a huge challenge ahead of us, and and I can tell you we focus on older properties that have big bedroom count. We have some four bedroom, three bedrooms, and we find the demand for those is off the charts. And most of those are multi generational families, and it's part of a senior care right situation it's part of launching the millennial that's living at home but three bedrooms there's we rarely have those turnover i bet i hope that you're enjoying the conversation with daryl carter i had a chance to speak with cw early a managing director with our sponsor jll about the affordable and workforce housing investment business jw is a managing director in the capital markets group at jll based in their Gainesville, Florida office. CW, what do you see as the big factors today for investors looking at affordable and workforce housing versus more upscale properties? Yeah, the, the main benefit and the biggest reason to invest in affordable housing outside of you know, a greater commission uh, objective is safety and, and stability. When you're in a high-cost market involved in an affordable housing project, you have rents that are substantially below market, which means you have really excess demand. And because of that excess demand, you will always stay full as long as you're providing a a safe, high-quality housing property. Because of that demand, there are very few chances for ever really taking a loss. So, you know, long-term investment is... Um, is exceptional uh, and that with downturns with whatever may come to bear in the future you know, that development should should maintain its its safety and provide a, a, an adequate return now back to the conversation with Daryl Carter it's interesting because the other societal change we alluded to it before is that people are now coming back to the city and Detroit's a perfect example where it with middle-class people that hollowed out, and then now it's come back totally, but it's in San Francisco, it's all other cities, that younger people and older people, like me, because I moved back in two years ago, want to be here, want to be in an urban environment. And again, that creates in and of itself an affordability issue in a big way. So totally totally different subject. Daryl, you've been one of the leaders in the African-American real estate community. And so talk a little bit about that, about getting into the business, about how that has changed, how it's welcomed or not welcome, what the challenges have been, and then the benefits of diversity in the workforce. 
Well, I would start off by saying, you know, in 37 years, I've experienced all kinds of things. But most of my experiences have been positive in terms of being, you know, well-received by my peers. I mean, I look at, you know, my colleagues at Continental Bank. I look at, you know, and, and, and part of that is I've just been fortunate. Have, that, have I come across situations of racism? Absolutely. You know, I mean, I came across it at Michigan, at MIT, at a certain point, you just learn how to deal with that. And right. if you are going to be successful in life, it's it's the uh, the way I look at some of it, not that I trivialize it, but, you know, if I'm taking Southwest and I'm getting the middle seat and I'm 6'8", I got to deal with it for an hour and a half. And, that's, <laughs> and I just look at it in the same sense. What I do think, though, is um, I look at our investment strategy – we invest, uh, probably half our communities are in communities of color, primarily African-American and Latino. Uh-huh. And there have been some absolute biases for investors to invest in many of the communities. Now, some is perception more than reality. Uh-huh. Um, you know, I look at, you know, we started investing, we invested in West Oakland, you know, 10 years ago or, or eight years ago. And if you the the fact we bought uh, our first investment in Oakland, uh, which is right across from the the I think it's Seventh Street Bart Station, and then you're eight minutes from that stop, you're eight minutes into San Francisco. It's an amazing location. Yeah. Well, but we bought that at fifty thousand a that property at four fifty thousand a unit. Land costs that in San Francisco or more when we bought it, and you say. It can't stay like this. I don't care if what is happening in this, you know, eight minutes away, there has to be a reversion to some mean at some point. If the Bay Area is going to be the dynamic place where things grow, this area is going to get better. And we made the investment, We, you know, and, and it was a very, very successful investment. But I would say typically we see that across the country. Mm-hmm. You know, like we've we're, we've we've bought four properties or four properties in Chicago this year. We're buying a property on the south side of Chicago, right next to the University of Chicago. We're paying half as what we're paying on a more. We're paying half as much as we're paying on a property on the north side of Chicago. Mm-hmm. They're not that different. I mean, the, the they're they're the similar distance from downtown. They're and and it's just that. It's in a community that people have perceptions about, and the perceptions are worse than the reality. Yeah, there are some bad neighborhoods on the south side of Chicago, but not that one. But the fact that it is on the south side of Chicago, it's primarily African-American, it trades for half the price of a comparable asset on the north side of Chicago. Mm -hmm. And so we have learned to take advantage of that essential arbitrage price disparity because we don't because the interesting thing if it's an affordable deal mm-hmm. where it's rent restricted the rents are the same in both <laughs> and so you know and the same thing we we own in the dc area we have properties in loudon county very affluent montgomery county also affluent a little less and now we're buying in Prince George's. Prince George's, we're paying half as much as what we pay right. in those other and places. Is that now or has been for a long time majority minority county? Yes. yes. 
And it's but and and now the the schools there are challenged compared mm-hmm. to the other places, and that makes a difference. Um, but you know the 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 demand and the access and all those things are just as strong. I mean, we're we just closed on a deal that's a seniors, but it's it's five minutes from Andrews Air Force Base, and you know the, the, that shouldn't trade significantly less than something, you know, I mean... Mm-hmm. So, well, the question is, because I think we have some history, the question is, is that a lower income but stable market or maybe a market that will appreciate versus, or is it a market that will crash? And 30 years ago, some of those markets crashed. The so values crashed, but yes. that's a different thing now. Well, but that's that's a function of employment, jobs, things like that. I right. mean, the fact is... The federal government is not leaving Washington. I don't think so. And, they're and trying. The, they're, well, they, they, they are. They're going to be there. And, and, you know, Andrew Air Force Base is not going to close, mm-hmm. you know. And, and the, the dynamic – but, it, again, a lot of it is perception. I mean, what's happened – I mean, we just are uh, acquiring a property in, in Harlem, and we've been buying in Brooklyn. Now, Harlem has become – the values have, in fact, gone up, and we're not getting a bargain there. But – you know, again, I think that, you know, one of the things that helps us in our company, we're highly diverse. And being able to understand many of these markets, I mean, our head of um, uh, of project finance, Tanya Barnes, grew up in uh, Prince George's County. She knows every nuance. Right. And she said, no, this is a good location. I mean, and, and that's the thing. We're involved in a couple of properties in Detroit. I know the neighborhood. And, and not to say that others can't learn and know, but, you know, it, it's hard that, you know, in, in you have certain communities where I, I would suspect that, you know, uh, there are firms that wouldn't get out of the car in some of the ner- neighborhoods that we've invested in because they would perceive like, wow, wow, you know, and, and they're perfectly safe. I mean, they're, they may have issues, but you have issues in a lot of neighborhoods. I mean, mm-hmm. right around San Francisco. I mean, right around here, we have lots of issues. Right. Um, so, you know, I think what's important is that, you know, the, the, we have found that when we make the investment in certain communities and like North Long Beach, that we bought a property, we bought the largest Section 8 property, project-based Section 8 property in North Long Beach had all kinds of gang problems, had all kinds. And, and there are still gang elements there. But this was this property was 15% of the police calls in North Long Beach. They have three divisions. And, and, and so it was a considerable thing. And, you know, what? when we bought it, the, the biggest issue that we had is we had about 528 apartments. We have about 1,300 kids. Mm-hmm. So these kids... You know, and and this is the challenge today. You know, the we we talk a lot, and you know, out of Washington. Well, we want people who are recipients of housing assistance to work. Well, they already do. I mean, whatever. You know, there were a group of us that met with Secretary Carson of uh, six weeks ago, and we said, you know, ninety-five percent of our Section Eight residents work. The only 5% that don't are, you know, the elderly or disabled, and most of those are veterans. So people work, and their kids get home, and what happens to those kids for those three to four hours makes a difference on that community. So what we try to do at this property that we bought in Long Beach, which is called North Point, 
is we just inundate the kids with after school activities. Mm-hmm. And, you know, we built a state of the art basketball court. We have leagues, we have volleyball things. And and our investors say, well, does that diminish our return? I said, no, it enhances, it enhances your return. Right. Absolutely. Because our maintenance costs go down, our turnover costs. You know, we have a waiting list. That was a property that people had to live at, and now they. They want to live at. And, you know, and part of it is I've sat down with gang members. And I will tell you, I've done that probably at a half dozen of our communities. Every time I have, these young men have been incredibly respectful. At a minimum, they're just curious because many of them, you know, uh, when I, when I, when we bought the property up in, in, in Oakland, and um, I met a few of the gang members, and they said, "You own this apartment property. How did you do this? What do you? What does it take?" And they, they're just so curious uh-huh. to see an African American that owns right. an apartment community. That you know, when I go into our community in Long Beach, the the guys and gang members, they just like, "Okay, tell me how you do this, and how do you do that? Why did you do this?" <laughs> I mean, they are peppering me with um, questions, uh-huh. and you it, you would not think that. And and I would, and some of these young men, when I sit down and talk, and I start explaining things, and you know, they start saying, "Oh, so if you bought it for this, you have to get this kind of rent." And I'm like, "Wow, you're really, really good at math." <laughs> and I said, "You're really." He said, "Well, in my business, you mess up money, you die." <laughs> and I'm like, "Wow." <laughs> I said, "You're really good in our business," but you know that. I do think that many of our residents and many of the properties we own and the fact that there is a, you know, an African-American that's one of the owners and that is present and that cares and asks them and just listens to them, it changes the dynamic in the community. And, and, and it, I, I, you know, and, and that, you know, we have, um, you know, other members, you know, in our executive leadership team that are diverse. It, it People notice that. They notice that when we do our contracting, that we bring in contractors from the neighborhood sometimes, you know, mm-hmm. uh, that look like our residents. Right. So it changes their view of their community. And I know it seems incredibly simplistic, but it's amazing how much it does matter. Oh, I better does. Have it. Do you, I'm going to say his name wrong, but he's going to be a, a guest on the podcast in a couple of weeks. Have, do you know Cedric Bobo? So he has a business where he's investing with A Rod and others, but some and and uh, Blackstone people. But they're investing in communities and they're having young kids, particularly African American kids, in the investment group making those decisions to learn from real estate investing. I will put you guys in touch well, with that, each Well, that other. is a great idea. You know, and part of it is that many of these young men never see people, you know, I mean, one of the things that I've learned, and particularly because I'm also a detail person, to be visible at our communities because a lot of these, you know, particularly the young men, they are, again, they – they want to learn. They want to know. They want right. to. Uh, well, they have no role models to look to. Here's an entrepreneur. It's an entrepreneur who's African American and grew up in a community like me. Plays basketball. He's a big guy, so I can relate to him in different ways. Not that he's. So it, that's a wonderful, rare thing. You're giving well, them an avenue to believe in. Well, that. And, and you know, I brought a friend of mine is Norm Nixon, who used to play for the Lakers, and uh-huh. you know, his wife Debbie Allen 
who has the the dance studios right. and we have been looking at partnering with Debbie to bring some of her dance clinics to oh, some of great. our communities and so um I brought uh Norm to our property in Long Beach and now these kids they didn't they just you know when I said uh you know when we we saw a couple of kids and I said you know this guy used to play for the Lakers and they like oh my god so then by the you know we were you know at the community center and these kids come in and they they all came up to me because Norm's about six one six two I said no 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 it's him and and uh but you know it there is that that desire for the role models right and um, Huge. you know and 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 also for learning things that you know, are, are different, you know, because it, it becomes aspirational. Like, mm-hmm. you know, they say, well, I, you know, I, they'll say, well, God, you own our building. I said, no, 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 this is your building. You live here. You, I take care of the building for you. I work for you. I always make it very clear. This is your home. This is not my home. This is your home. I'm just taking care of it for you. Right. So, you know, remember that. You own it, not I. Other diversity question, then we're going to wrap up, but is in the boardroom. So think of think of the real estate business. Think of REITs. Think of the boardroom. Think of the Urban Landeds. Think of NMHC, the places that we get to play. It's a old white guy's business and world. You bring diversity to that. What is the importance of diverse perspectives say at the boardroom level or at the board of ULI or in the industry? Well, I think it makes for very successful companies. And I'll cite a couple of examples. Uh-huh. You know, we took on a major diversity initiative at NMHC, which was really precipitated by two people, Doug Bibby, three people, Doug Bibby, Rick Campo, and Peter Donovan. Uh-huh. And they all said, we need to make this our you know, membership and leadership look look different. And I had then started the leadership chair when when Rick was the chairman. Rick went out and he said, you know, because someone mentioned board, and he said, God, my board is all a bunch of white guys. So Rick went out and got two, got a Latino and African American member immediately. Mm-hmm. And he he said, you know, and and can't and if you look at Rick's executive team, there are a lot of women, there are a lot of people of yeah. color, and Rick has just been, his company is an incredibly successful company. They're and, one of the Fortune 100 right, best right. places. And, and it's because of Rick's commitment to that. You look at Tom Bazzuto, he's another. I mean, he was part of the. He was served as chairman before me. Tom is another one, and right. who who recognize also where they do business and and the places. Um, and I think that when you look at, you know, P- uh, Peter has also been, you know, v- that's been very important to him. And if you look widely throughout the industry, I do think, particularly the multifamily industry, I think people have, there is a sense of momentum of people trying to, to, to improve the diversity. Now, we have some challenges in the sense that we get, we tend to get more women in property management and HR and less in acquisitions and investment. And, you know, I'm proud to say that we have had, you know, we have a a woman who's CFO and who's very talented. And we had a co-head of acquisitions who left us who was a woman. And, you know, we think it's important to broaden, to look at diversity, not just in numbers, but in positions of where people are. I mean, I can tell you this, that our company is successful, I believe, because we're diverse, but we're diverse in many different ways. And one of which I can tell you, 
I've had some of my younger leaders lead me in places that, you know, I mean, just a, a quick one. Uh, our head of property management, who's in his 30s, he looks like, I always say, you know, you look like you shouldn't be, you know, you should be an intern. But he runs our property management business, uh-huh. Nicholas Dunlop. He grew uh-huh. up in a family. His dad was in property management. He was in, you know, rental offices in Compton when he was 15. He's an incredibly mature but very talented, you know, UCLA graduate. But he came to me and he said, you know what? Our residents rely on technology more than in higher-end properties. Mm-hmm. And I, I didn't believe it. He said, I want to develop an app where our residents can interact with us on anything. And he also pointed out something that was somewhat maybe intuitive, but he was he said, you know, in, in our communities where English is not the major language, our interaction are with the kids because they speak better English than their parents. Mm-hmm. And you give the kids a, an app or you know something like that, they're going to use it. And so he had asked for a couple hundred thousand dollars to build this app. And it was been the most successful thing that we've done because now we've adopted most of our residents pay rent on the app. All of our maintenance requests come through that. And it's really transformed our business. And that was... Me, who just had no right. you know, intuition about these things, uh, just turning that over to, you know, someone coming. And, and that was, you know, like I remember we were having a manager's meeting and I looked around and there was no one under 40 there. And we were talking about social media. And I said, why are we talking about it? We don't use it. <laughs> That's right. And so we got a group of our young leaders who are responsible for, for that strategy. And I think that's equally as important to move out of the way and let people, you know, with new ideas and new strategies come along. And and, um, and that's been transformative with our company. That's wonderful. So last question is always the same, but I'm going to switch it up a little bit in this case. So last question is always, what would your advice be to a young person coming into the business to plan a career? But the way I'll switch it up is, what advice would you give to a young person of diverse background choosing whether or not to come into this industry and then how to navigate their way through if they do. Why, why get into real estate? I would tell them that it is a business that you touch a lot of people and you could make a huge impact on people, which I think is just extraordinarily um, rich. I mean, when you think about, I mean, you know, to, Uber can move people around from place to place, but home is where people live. And, you know, our business, we provide homes for people who need them. And that is just an incredible responsibility as well as opportunity to, to transform people's lives. And, you know, it's been proven that, you know, a, a safe environment, well lit, you know, that is healthy. People perform, kids perform better in school. So I, I just think that the mission of our industry is is phenomenal, whether it's, it's apartments, whether it's shopping, whether it's industrial. But, you know, every aspect of what we do is housed in something. It is enveloped by a building. It's not all virtual. Uh, so I, that would be why they should go into it. And then my biggest advice, which is my biggest advice for most people, which is the most important thing that I've learned in my life is patience, the Mm -hmm. P word. And it is not, it is inconsistent with most ambitious people. But I have learned that the tortoise really does win. You don't have to be first. You you have to be thoughtful, meticulous, 
and patient. And, you know, you might see yourself being at a plateau, but it might be okay. You know, you'll, when it's time to go to that next level, you'll know it. And I think very often people who are younger and particularly people who are diverse, they'll see me and they'll like, I want to be there next week. Well, you know, it took 37 years. Now, maybe it'll take you 25 years or maybe it takes you only 15 years. But there is an incubation period and that, you know, the most important thing is your, you know, and what are you developing then? You're developing your Rolodex, your contacts, because this is ultimately who you can pick up the phone and call, and the longer you're at it, the more people you know. And secondly, your skill base. So patience is the one thing that mm-hmm. I preach all the time, including my children, and it's the, it's the lost art of, um, it's one of the lost virtues today in our society because everybody, there's a perception that everything has you know, has sped right. up and you can build companies in a year and what's happening in the tech world. But patience to me is, is the most important thing. It, it's interesting. When I talk to young people, one of my ways to describe a similar concept, and this was the case with me, was it pretend that it won't come together till you're 40 and have the first 20 years you're wandering around and gaining experiences and you don't know how they'll add up to gel to become this thing that you become in the second half of your career where it may come together. And it was it's a wonderful way to look at because it, it changes the mind from this has to be perfect, this has to work, i got to kill it right now. But you're always well, gaining experience. And, you know, it's, it's, I always give the story, and which is probably a story about Capri, when Quentin and I started the business, we wanted to have an institutional partner. And uh, I, I always ask people when I speak, like I was at my daughter's high school the other day, how many meetings do you think it took us to find an investor? And people say, oh, 10. I said, no, it was the 57th meeting. And the only reason we had the 57th meeting is because we had the 56th meeting and our package was on someone else's desk who was meeting 56. He then had a meeting with meeting 57 who was nosy enough to ask about it. And they were interested. And that was someone who had been named the U.S. president of Chesterton and who knew me from years ago. And that was how it, it, it happened. So you never know where you're when and where you're going to get a break. You just got to go up to the plate and keep a swinging. Lot. Yes. <laughs> a lot more than anyone imagines. Hey, Daryl, thank you so much for the well, conversation you, today. Matt. You asked very great. good questions. This was great. <laughs> This episode of Leading Voices in Real Estate has been brought to you by JLL. The firm's in-depth local market and global investor knowledge delivers the best-in-class solutions for clients. Whether a sale, financing, repositioning, advisory, or recapitalization execution. Are you interested in how to make your ambition a reality? Learn more at jll.com voices. That's jll.com voices. 